Show me the money. This is the MoneyWeb Be a Better Investor podcast. Picking the brains of professional investors on their investment strategies, successes, and mistakes. Your host, Rake Fanica. Welcome to this week's edition of the Be A Better Investor podcast. My name is Raik van Niekerk and in this podcast series I speak to finance and investment professionals about their investment journeys and their approach to investments. We delve into their past and discuss how their perspectives on investments have changed over the years and the idea is to find a few tips and tricks from their personal experiences to assist amateur retail investors to become better investors. My guest today is Charles de Villiers. He's head of equities at Ashburton Investments and he has an interesting background. He first studied engineering, then moved into the financial world. He received an MBA from the University of Cape Town and he is also a CFA. He started his investment career in 2003 when he was a management consultant at Nebula. Two years later, he moved to Islet as an equity analyst and in 2008, he joined Sunlam as a portfolio manager and he joined Ashburton in 2021 as the head of equities. Charles, thank you so much for your time today. First of all, give us a bit of background. Where did you grow up and when were you first exposed to the investment world? Thanks, Rake. I've got a, a roundabout journey, I would say, as you've alluded to, maybe not gone through the usual channels in doing accountancy and ending up in a financial institution from the get-go. I grew up, I was born and, and raised in Port Elizabeth in the Eastern Cape, so still really, although I've been living in Cape Town for many decades now, I still kind of consider myself as an Eastern Caper, should I say. Leaving school, one doesn't really know what you want to do with your life, and I think Having two parents that had very little understanding of financial markets, I didn't know what I didn't know, really. So I didn't even really know much or anything at all about financial markets and what the potential career opportunities were in financial markets and kind of ended up doing one of these aptitude tests. And I thought at the time that I didn't want to end up working in office and wanted something that was kind of stimulating and kind of rewarding from a remuneration point of view. And so kind of aptitude test pointed me in the direction of engineering and kind of off I went. And I suppose it finished up with, yeah, got my qualification and ended up you know, working in engineering for a few years. And you know, at that time, it was quite popular for a bunch of young people to you know, post studies to end up in, in London on a working visa. And I went that route to get a bit of real world experience and a bit of you know, life experience, etc. And ended up working in engineering in London. And during that period, I think I kind of realized that that wasn't really filling my bucket, so to say, and um, started like, you know, looking at what, what else I could do to maybe you know, change career path. So at that point in time, still, you know, I had really no view of financial markets or no understanding of financial markets and asset management per se, and, and ended up enrolling in, to do my MBA back at the Graduate School of Business in Cape Town and ended up initially planning to do it on a part-time basis because I had to pay for it myself and was working in London, so I was saving up for that. And I think it can cost your mind back. The rand really fell out of bed, I think, as I was about to move back from London to South Africa. And that allowed me to look at actually doing my MBA full-time instead of part-time. Otherwise, I would have had to work to supplement it. So I kind of brought all the money back into rand and managed to do my MBA on a full-time basis. And it was during that year that 
you know, you obviously start first time I'd been experienced to the, you know, the time value of money. I didn't know what that was, you know, prior to enrolling in my MBA. And, and during that course, I actually realized that, you know, during those modules of the MBA, that that, that was an area that I really, one, enjoyed and two, had a competence in, I suppose. And then, you know, one gets the opportunity within the MBA to kind of decide where you want to focus your energy in terms of electives and that. And then, I, you know, at that point in time was, decided to push all my electives as much as possible into kind of yeah, financially orientated areas, financial markets, etc. So that's kind of a roundabout route really to how I got to where I am at the moment. But that was, as you've said, a roundabout route. But, you know, doing an MBA and focusing on the analyses of investment opportunities, you make or should have battled without an accounting background, I would assume. Just take us through how you adapted to be able to really become proficient in investment analyses without accounting. Yeah, so I mean, I think it is obviously there's an element of accounting that one does in business school. It's one of the one of the core subjects that you do, so you you understand the basics. And you know, post completing that one, you know, one obviously does a lot of reading and your own research around it. I don't think you know understanding accounts is is rocket science for any listeners out there. I mean, you know, it's there is an element of common sense to it. Obviously, there's a lot of detail that, you know, people what you do when you do your formal accountancy degrees, et cetera, that, you know, one as a person that hasn't done that won't get that nuance. But, you know, the skills one needs in my opinion to analyze a company's income statement, balance sheet and cash flow and understand more importantly around the business model, the risks, et cetera, I think it's, it's you know, there's a level of base understanding that one can get. And then obviously, I also did my CFA shortly after completing my MBA once I realized that, this was an area that I wanted to spend the rest of my working career in. And you know, that, so that also gave me a, another step up in terms of you know, understanding the accountancy side of things and you know, other elements that maybe I hadn't covered previously in my MBA. Now, the CFA qualification, I think that's the premier investment qualification you can get. And you learn a significant amount about the analysis of equities, especially. When did you make your very first investment, an investment with money you've actually made yourself? It would probably be significantly later than most people would assume. So you know, as I've mentioned to you, ended up finishing my MBA and by chance actually met Walter Eilert's nephew, or say brother-in-law, should I say, who was actually a school friend of mine on the trip back from somebody's birthday. I can't remember exactly what it was. And, and he was mentioning to me that his brother-in-law was had just left coronation and was opening up an asset management and was looking for people to join him in terms of you know growing that business and that was you know, a bit of fate or luck or whatever you want to call it but being what I'd just gone through in terms of my MBA that I knew that was the area I wanted to end up working in and that's so I got into working with Walter and that was after you know, a brief stint doing some consulting engineering as you mentioned that was my first and my work with Walter was my first real experience into the financial world and at that point in time we weren't we actually invested well at first we didn't have a lot of money to do you know, investments and uh, staff there, obviously invest by the unit trust. So you only really got into making your own investments in terms of shares you know, late in life. You know, I think that was one of my, in looking back and understanding the value of compounding as one of my, you know, my greatest regrets really is that not being exposed to starting earlier really in my investment career. You know, I think there's a huge missed opportunity for myself there, knowing what I know now. And I, you know, I've got some teenage boys and they really tease me. I'm always hoping on about compounding and, and how it's the eighth wonder of the world. And 
I've really got them, you know, their own share trading accounts and they're really investing and they've done pretty well already. So when did you start? When did you realize compounding is excellent, but you haven't started early enough? Yeah, so, I mean, I didn't start that, that early. I mean, so I only started like kind of during my tenure at Sunlam, really, if you can believe it. So, you know, fortunately, subsequent to that, I think investment decisions have gone well. I think hopefully I can say I've got some competence in doing it well. So I've probably been able to catch up yeah, some of the lost opportunity that starting earlier would have brought me. But I mean, I still, you know, as I mentioned to you, I think that's one of the biggest regrets really about not having started earlier. And it's more a function of just not knowing what I didn't know. And you know, when I did know what I, you know, value of compounding, it didn't really have any money. I was paying for my MBA and, and, and the like. So, but as soon as I, you know, was in the industry and had, had, had funds available, that was kind of when I started really. Were those investments contributions to a pension fund or was it discretionary investments in addition to contributions to a pension yeah, fund? Yeah, both discretionary and, and obviously usual contributions. We had very little control over but, you know, something that then obviously we have the ability to invest on a discretionary basis as well. So, yeah, a bit of both, really. Um, but let's talk forward. about the discretionary portfolio. What was the very first investment you've made? Sure. Now you're asking me, looking back, I think if I just think back, it was probably a company, I'm not sure if you'll even remember, that used to be on the JSC Delta EMD, that used to have material that goes into alkaline batteries. And for a long period of time, I was analyst at Walter, at Ellison Company, as well as at Sunlum. It was still listed. It's obviously delisted many years back. And another company that springs to mind was um, UCS, which was a IT company that I was also analyzing many moons back. Those are two that kind of spring to mind. And did you make money from those? Yes, I did. I did very well out of them. So I haven't had too many disasters from a discretionary investment portfolio point of view, which is hopefully a good thing. Yeah, I'm going to ask you about the disasters in a minute. But let's get to it. What has been the biggest mistake or dog of an investment you've made? Well, I suppose in professional capacity, we were investors in Steinhoff at a point in time. But in my career at Sunlam, we were really material holders of Steinhoff at a point in time. Fortunately for us, we had juiced our exposure significantly when they started off on their M&A drive on the back of you know, increased risk, etc. So by the time that the poor boy hit the fan, we were significantly smaller investors in the company than we were initially. But, you know, be that as may, it was still something that, you know, you scar on your scars on your back and that you carry with you for the rest of your career. And, and those are good things, you know, you learn from mistakes and as you know, long as you don't make the same mistake twice, I think that's, you know, mistakes are not the end of the world for listeners out there. I think we expect our team, myself included, that we have made mistakes, we will make more mistakes in the future, but I think our objective is not to make the same mistake twice and we move forward really. So that's part and parcel of, you know, why also I find the investment career so appealing. You know, you're not getting everything right. On a day-to-day basis, you're going to be making mistakes. You know, you're learning about new industries, you're dealing with really great quality caliber of people and, um, and intellect, etc. And it's a challenge on a day-to-day basis, you know. Just when you think you're top of the world, something you think can come from left field and, and really take the legs out from under you. So you need to continue to have a huge amount of humility in this profession, really, because... 
if you don't, you're asking for trouble, in my opinion. Yeah, and obviously that also ties in with a diversified portfolio. So if there is a bad performing investment, the whole portfolio is not affected as much. But in many cases, amateur retail investors listen to a company CEO or senior analysts in the industry when they talk about certain companies. And the CEOs can sometimes be very, very persuasive. And they talk a good game, but when the results are published, it is not as attractive. How valuable do you find the comments CEOs or senior directors of a company make? And does that influence your investment decision? Because I would imagine in Steinoff's case, you know, Marcus used to spoke a good game and, you know, look what happened. So I think you've got to obviously not rely on management teams and management communications as to being one of the foundations of your investment case. I mean, that's just a management communications are merely there to provide, you know, maybe some color to your underlying assumptions and assumptions around the investment case and, and what you're building into your your valuations, etc. So, I mean, as you say, invariably, you know, management teams are overly optimistic and are going to be obviously looking at the world through rose-colored glasses. So I think what's more important for, you know, investors out there, both private investors and professional investors, is to do your own homework, you know, to go in and, and read the annual reports from cover to cover, build your own model, understand that more importantly and most importantly, understand the business model, you know, what are the drivers of the business model, which of those drivers are under control of management and versus out of control of management, and, and understand on the return on capital profile of the business and the volatility of earnings within the business over many cycles. And only after you've gone through that process, then if you're talking to management, et cetera, you overlay you know, those comments with your understanding of the business. And often you find that those don't tie up. And, and in those cases, you know, over time, you learn to trust certain management teams more than others. And you learn to also take a lot of what management say with a, with a pinch of salt and actually rely on your own fundamental research. You know, the same goes for also relying on sell-side analysts' recommendations, et cetera, which are often you know, driven by much more short-term thinking then as opposed to long-term thinking which the investment team try to focus on on so you know that's an interesting view you have professional investors fund managers they do the very very detailed analyses they've built their models and then you will see in the portfolios that there are very divergent views some asset managers would own a particular share while uh, other asset manager would hold a competitor's share. So these analyses do not always match up. So maybe the question is, is it a science investment analysis or is there some art also to it? No, there's most definitely a part art, part science. I mean, as anybody that's built a financial model will know that there's a, a whole host of inputs that go into a financial model, be it discount rates, be it you know, growth rates. Yeah, there's obviously whole capex around working capital assumptions, etc. All these elements that affect your future free cash flow that a business can generate. And, you know, it's usually dependent on what your inputs are. So, I mean, valuation is most definitely not a sign. When our team, we get to a valuation point, which we think is our kind of fair valuation, we had by no means think that that is a precise valuation. We understand very well there's a range of outcomes that could potentially play out over the future and, and because of that we rather like to think of it as 
you know, as a bear case to a bull case, and you know, kind of the one point that we use as our as our valuation is kind of a midpoint of that range, and that's kind of our best estimate of how things may play out. But we know very well that things could be a lot worse than that, and other side may also be too, might be a lot better. Various investors will have different views of the future and of discount rates to use, etc. So they can come to very different answers. One of the biggest challenges for retail investors is underperforming investments. Let's say you buy a share, you believe it will fly, but then it doesn't. It really performs poorly. How do you think such an investor should take out emotion in that decision, but still take a decision which is, you know, let's cut our loss and invest in something else? I think one has to take a mature view, and this comes through years of working in the industry and also working with the right people and the right teammates, etc., to understand that there are going to be points in time where share prices will decline after you buy them. I mean, I always say to my team, nobody rings a bell, you know, at the trough of a share price, you know, so invariably you're going to buy into shares and, and they're going to carry on going down. It doesn't mean your investment case is wrong and that you need to, you know, change tack, but you need to be mature and have a mature outlook that, you know, where you've got a bunch of assumptions that have got you to a point that you believe that this was a good investment case and you know, as time goes on we know that when you're making you know forecasts of the future you're invariably going to be wrong and where your forecasts are materially wrong and those are material drivers of a company's valuation or investment case you need to have the maturity within the team as well as yourself to say i've made a mistake and you know things have changed and at that point in time, you should have no qualms about selling something, even if it's dropped 30% from the point you bought it. I mean, put your hand on your heart and say, I was wrong. Things have changed. Things not as I understood them. And I'm not happy to sell, but I mean, you're selling because you rather deploy that capital in an investment opportunity that you, you know, the probabilities are more skewed in your favor. The risk return is, is more in your favor versus something where, where things have changed. Lastly, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself when you were 20 years old, what would you tell yourself about how they should approach investments? I would go back and say start early, as early as possible. I would love to tell your listeners that investments are not, shouldn't be daunting and they are not rocket science. Understanding a company, even building a simple discounted cash flow model with basic Excel skills is, is quite within the capability of, I would imagine, a significant portion of the population that has got the appetite and the willingness to actually apply their mind to it. So you don't just have to listen to to investment professionals like myself and other people that are you know, telling you to buy or sell shares. You can do a lot of your own work and, and understanding albeit it might seem daunting, but um, you know, once you get into it, there's a huge amount of resources available out there to learn about that. So, yeah, start early. Don't be scared to do the hard work. Roll up your sleeves and reach out to people that can help you. I, mean, I think most investment professionals and people within your circles, etc., will be willing to help where you come across people that have shown a willingness to learn, etc., and got appetite to, to increase their base of knowledge. Yeah, I would love to have started earlier. I think we're very blessed. I consider myself very blessed to work in investment management. It's an area that one gets a huge amount of career satisfaction out of. Yeah, I come to work every day. I enjoy what I'm doing. There's a Japanese term. I think it's Yigao. I think it's called you know, how one finds meaning in life. And I think that's doing what what you have a passion for. And I think you know, I think that I've been fortunate to end up in a vocation that I've got a huge amount of passion for. So now that 
think and I feel like coming to work every day is a burden on me. I'm really excited to come to work. So I think, yeah, that's been fortunate to end up doing what I'm doing. Yeah, that's a valuable life lesson. Do what you love to do and then it's not work. And I think the outcomes are very, very positive and the efforts you put in is a lot more valuable to the firm than if you just do a job. And if you're exactly. just doing a job, then try and pursue your passion. But Charles, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your insights with us. No, thank you. It's a pleasure and I hope it you know, can help some of your listeners out there and provide some context. Yeah, I think the tips regarding it should not be daunting. Just do the hard work and you can make uh, good investments, hopefully get more right than you get wrong. But I think that's a valuable insight. But thanks again for your time. That was Charles de Villiers. He's the head of equities at Ashburton Investments. Show me the money. That was the Money Web. Be a better investor podcast with Rake for Kneecap. Thanks for listening. Catch up and listen to all the MoneyWeb podcasts on moneyweb.co.za or the app. MoneyWeb, your trusted source for business and investment insights.